Good morning. You'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. A turning point chapter in the book. Now the first half of Acts was largely focused on the Jewish Christian community, particularly in Jerusalem and with the influential Jerusalem church. The Christian witness had begun there. That was chapters 1 through 5. Then the Hellenistic Jews that spread to Samaria uh, and, and all throughout the other land of the Jews, the Galilee and then up to Phoenicia after Stephen's execution. That's chapters 6 through 9. Then through the witness of Peter to Cornelius, the outreach of the Antioch church, and especially the major mission that we just studied that was completed by Paul and Barnabas, the gospel had broken through to the Gentiles. That was chapters 10 through 14. So all the preliminary steps had been taken for a major effort to reach the Gentile world for Christ. The precedents had been established. The first major successes among the Gentiles had been witnessed. And so the stage is set for Paul's mission. What, what, what we study for most of the New Testament when we read the epistles and the reason we sit here today as believers. When Paul took the gospel into the Greco-Roman world as the missionary to the Gentiles. But there remained one final hurdle. So for the next two weeks we have to deal with that hurdle. And that was the agreement of the church about the Gentile mission. The issue before the house is essentially this. How could Gentiles be accepted into a faith? How could the Gentiles become Christian? What, were the, 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 what was the process for that to happen? Now, what we're going to see is some opposition to that, or at least some placing of stumbling blocks in that, in that pursuit. And so, as an overarching theme, I want to touch on this idea of legalism. We do run into Pharisees in this chapter, and so legalism comes up. What is legalism? Well, a simple definition is this. Elevating opinions over the gospel and the scriptures. When opinions trump the word. William Barclay once said, in every generation there are some who try to be stricter than God. Legalism is dangerous because it promotes self-authority. It is to take something that cannot bring or keep your favor with God and make it binding on both yourself and others. Legalism is dangerous because it promotes self-righteousness. It promotes the earning and keeping of God's good pleasure based upon what I do or do not do. It also discounts those who do what I don't or don't do what I do. I feel like I sound a little like Paul in Romans 7 there, so I'm I'm safe. Legalism is dangerous because it promotes division. It's a system that thrives on personal performance, personal supremacy, and sadly the trampling of others. It relentlessly squashes grace and mercy and humility. It cripples Christian fellowship. Legalism is dangerous because it destroys gratitude toward God. It breeds self-reliance and superiority, and it leads one to lean on oneself for personal holiness and oftentimes for salvation as well. Most importantly, I would say legalism is dangerous because it denigrates Jesus and his all-sufficiency. To cling to personal merit through doing things or not doing things, however good they may seem, 
is to demote Jesus from his place of supremacy, from his place as the only path to salvation. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you glory this morning. It is a privilege to worship you. Thank you for the time that we've had to do that. Thank you for the time where we have been able to lift our voices to a worthy God. Gracious Savior of my ruined life. Lord, let us take that to heart this morning. Let us glory in your gospel and in your grace. And may you be magnified by all we do here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here is our outline. It is relatively simple. We cover a good number of verses here, but it is covering one single event. So verse 1 will tell us the issue at hand, as I've already mentioned. Then we will get into basically a, a proceeding, a legal proceeding, in which evidence is presented from several witnesses, and then James will come forward as the judge, as the arbiter of this whole thing, and pronounce judgment on what has been presented. So, Here is the traditional Jewish position that we are dealing with in our text today. They would call them Pharisees in this text. Paul later on will call some of them Judaizers. It's that argument that Gentiles should be received into Christ, into the church, on the same basis that Jews had always accepted Gentiles into the covenant community, specifically by proselyte initiation. Now you're going, those are some big words. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that a a male convert would submit to circumcision, and every convert to the Jewish faith would take on the full observance of the Mosaic law. In other words, for all intents and purposes, a Gentile Christian must become a Jew before he or she can be accepted into the church. That's the position of this traditional Jewish group that we will see this morning. Now, for us, that sounds kind of ridiculous. Most of us are not running into Jewish legalists who are trying to keep us out of the church. Legalism comes in other forms. But understand, in the first century, it's a natural question. It's a a legitimate question at this time in history. The early church was entirely Jewish. Jesus was Israel's Messiah. God had only one covenant people, the Jews. Christianity was the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Jews had always demanded all Gentile converts, the requirements of circumcision, the rituals of the law, the Torah. Why should that change? How could law-abiding Jewish Christians who seriously observed all the ritual laws have interaction with Gentile Christians who did not observe those laws? This is a real issue in the church. If they did that, the Jewish Christians would run the risk, in their minds at least, of defilement from the Gentiles. So something has to be done. Now, as I said, since chapter 10, we've been seeing Gentiles come in faith to Christ. And what have we seen in all of those? Well, I think what we have seen, or what we have not seen, is that there's no indication that Peter had laid those requirements on Cornelius and his household, that the Antioch church had not required the Gentiles who became a part of their fellowship to submit to those things. And it doesn't seem, in what we've read in the last couple chapters, that Paul and Barnabas laid that burden on Gentiles converted on their mission. And so, from the more Jewish church in Jerusalem, this is a cause for concern. In the larger church, this is a cause for concern. Why? Because different constituencies within the church cannot have different MOs and preach different paths to salvation. That would be a problem in the unified church. Fellowship hinges on this decision. 
Discipleship hinges on this decision. Evangelism hinges on this decision. As I've mentioned before, how can two people have meaningful Christian fellowship if they cannot enter one another's homes? How can they have meaningful Christian fellowship if they can't eat at the same table? How can they worship in the church side by side if one is deemed unclean? And most importantly, the doctrine of justification is on the line. As Martin Luther said, the church stands or falls on that doctrine. Now, that might seem like an overly strong statement, maybe even hyperbolic, but it's essential to an accurate understanding of the gospel. We must understand justification. Wasn't that what the Reformation was all about? But that's not the first time that that issue needed to be dealt with. It was not a 16th century issue. It was a 1st century issue. And justification is on the line here as well. Let's go to verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, this is to Antioch, by the way, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right, that is a strong statement. So now circumcision is tied to salvation. Notice that the men came down from Judea. Perhaps I've mentioned this before, but when you leave Jerusalem and Judea, you always go down. Whether you go north, south, east, west, you always go down. You go up to Jerusalem and you go down from Jerusalem. So even though they're going 250 miles north, they're going down from Judea to Antioch. Just notice when you read scriptures, it'll always say that. Now, we know that there are already many Gentiles in the Antioch church. There are Gentile believers, and these men show up to that assembly and say, if you're not submitting to the law of Moses, you're not in Christ. You want to talk about throwing a grenade into the assembly. That's what they've just done. Again, there's no indication that any of these converts submitted to that Jewish custom. If they had, these men probably wouldn't be here saying these things. And that's the point of contention right here. That's the issue at hand. Is circumcision required for salvation? Move it into the modern day. Is baptism required for salvation? Is a certain Bible translation required for Bible salvation? Is what you wear to church required for salvation? You name it. Those things go in, and this has been the path of, of, of uh, people falling away from the faith for eons now. Verse 2. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Now, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that the two guys that stand up and defend the right gospel are Paul and Barnabas. They're the foremost dissenters against this circumcision party. It's largely their missionary work that has caught the attention of these men. It's Paul and Barnabas' witness for the gospel that has brought Gentiles into the church. And so, of course, they're right in the middle of this. In fact, it's important also to note, and we've mentioned this in past chapters, that Barnabas is kind of one of their own. They're surprised that Barnabas would be in here. He's a Levite. He's a delegate of the church from Jerusalem. Remember, he went to Antioch originally to investigate if they were preaching the real gospel. And he was so inspired by the mission there, he stayed there and served. He's the one that brought Paul into this church. So after many heated discussions, it's realized pretty quickly that they're not going to come to an agreement here in Antioch. And so the decision is made to go up to Jerusalem. That's the mother church. That will be where they discuss the issue with apostles and elders. This is going to set the stage for what we would call the first council in church history. If you study church history, there were many councils over the years, some better than others. Uh, But this was the first one that ever happened. Verse 3. 
Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So Paul and Barnabas and their companions take the opportunity on the way to visit churches in Phoenicia and Samaria. And we talked about Paul's commitment to discipleship last week. He follows through on that here. Acts 11.19 confirms that Antioch's missionary work extended into Phoenicia. It was the Hellenistic Jews following the death of Stephen that took the gospel to those regions originally. And remember, those were regions that were viewed as untouchable by most Jews. Why would you go there? And yet, Christ was calling people to faith there. What was the reaction of the news that Gentiles were coming to Christ in Phoenicia and Samaria? It was joy. It was joy. They rejoice at the news of new converts. They see potential disciples where the Pharisees see less spiritual people, theological burdens. The churches there are focused on what the Lord is doing rather than legalism, rather than tradition, rather than implicit biases. So we arrive in Jerusalem and we've got a trial to go on and we have chief participants. And here are our representatives of each group. Representing the Antioch delegation are Paul and Barnabas. Of course they are. They're the ones that have taken this missionary journey. They know more about it than anybody. They've witnessed more than anyone. Representing the apostles is Peter. Peter had just recently been in Antioch. We'll talk about that. And then representing the elders is James, and we'll talk about him in just a few moments. Verse 4. When they arrived at Jerusalem... They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. So three distinct groups of people there. The church, that's the congregation. The apostles, that's one of the twelve, several of the twelve. We don't know how many were there, but at least the plural. And the elders, those that ruled in the church there at Jerusalem. You'll remember that the, that, that the church had largely been scattered. The apostles have gone out since, now, since then, but now they are back to, to deal with this very important issue. Just as they had done in Antioch, And in the churches in Phoenicia and Samaria, Paul and Barnabas give a full report of their missionary journey. Notice again, they reported all that God had done with them. The emphasis is on God's sovereignty. The emphasis is on God's providence. It was God that set Paul and Barnabas for this work. It was God who was calling the Gentiles to faith in Christ. Paul and Barnabas had not gone rogue No, they were following their Lord. They were obedient. Verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Almost identical to what was said in verse 1. Here is our point of contention. Now when we see Pharisees, we probably run back to the Gospels because Jesus has so many interactions with them. Acts records many Pharisees coming to Christ. We will see more and more as we go through the book. Interestingly enough, there are no Sadducees that ever come to Christ in Scripture, but Pharisees often come. And that shouldn't be too much of a surprise if you know about the Pharisees. Pharisees believed in resurrection. They believed in eternal life. They believed in a coming Messiah. They believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. These were pious men. Now, they had fallen into legalism and self-righteousness, But they believed these things, so it makes sense that when reading the Scriptures, Nicodemus being a a prime example, he understood that Jesus was who the Scriptures pointed to. 
They also shared the basic convictions of the Christians. But their issue, again, was often legalism, self-righteousness. And it seems that old habits sometimes die hard. Many of them were still legalists at heart. These are not the Pharisees that opposed Jesus. Now, some of them may be, there may be a Venn diagram here, a cross-section, that if people that have come to faith. But what I mean is, this isn't that group that is opposing the message of Christ. These are identifying Pharisees, Paul was a Pharisee, that has believed in Christ for salvation. They claim Christ. What does that tell us? That sometimes Pharisees are inside the church. Jesus had to deal with the Pharisees outside the church. Paul and Barnabas and James and Peter are dealing with Pharisees inside the church. Legalism is something that we all need to guard against. Why? Because we need to be honest. We like tradition. We like predictability. We cling a little too tightly to the good old days. In this case, it's becoming evident that as the evangelistic trend continues towards the Gentiles, there will soon be more Gentiles in the church than there are Jews. That's a threat to power. That's a threat to those that have their minds on earthly things. The major stumbling block for Pharisees in coming to Christ was adherence to the oral tradition, which both Jesus and Paul make clear is a man-made invention. Not necessarily bad in and of itself, but not scripture and having nothing to do with salvation. It's not surprising that some Pharisees came to embrace Christ as the Messiah. That's who they had been hoping for. But for all their emphasis on the law, it's also not surprising that they would be reticent to receive anyone into the fellowship that didn't accord with their traditions. Nonetheless, it is sin. This is sinful behavior within the church. Sin that must be repented of and denounced. Why? For the health of the church. Pharisaism has no place in the church. Notice that the argument is not, they don't keep the Ten Commandments. On the contrary, Paul's going to preach the necessity of the moral law. He's going to say, we, have, we, we keep the moral law. We don't sin so that grace can abound more. No, we keep the law. The issue at hand is the ceremonial law. What one eats, what one wears, and with whom one associates. These were the things that made the Jews Jews and seemed strange and arbitrary to the Gentiles. It's also not they believe a different gospel. If that was the issue, it would need to be dealt with immediately. That's not the argument. These Gentiles are gospel-believing Christ followers. No argument there. The attempted exclusion is occurring from a perspective of tradition and preferences. Perhaps even a desperate group to hold on to power, to maintain influence. Consider the result if this circumcision party had prevailed. What if they won this argument? Gentiles who had been saved by grace through faith would be forced to submit to Jewish law thereby functionally making them Jews, thereby making it impossible for them to share the gospel with fellow Gentiles. It would be a vicious cycle. It would have created a perpetual situation that would break the fellowship of the church and cripple evangelism. That's why this is a big deal. Verse 6, the apostles came and and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Peter stood up. We'll get to him in just a second. But debate among the leadership gives way to a a formal inquiry. The apostles and the elders now stand up. It's unclear how many apostles were present at this council, but it's likely that several of them were probably in attendance. 
The central witness in these proceedings is a man who has dominated the first half of the book of Acts. It's the apostle Peter. He reappears here for this council. And here's what Peter says. Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So what's Peter's testimony? Wrapping up in kind of a summary statement. God directed him, same as Paul and Barnabas, by the way. God directed him to Cornelius to share the gospel with a Gentile audience. God gave the Holy Spirit to those Gentile believers, and God cleansed their hearts by faith. The visit to Cornelius occurred eight to nine years prior to this council. Recall that he gave a full report to the Jerusalem church about that incident in Acts chapter 11. What he had learned on that occasion was that God looks on the heart, not on external matters, that God is no respecter of persons. Peter's point is this, what he witnessed in Caesarea with Cornelius was identical to what Peter and the apostles witnessed in Jerusalem at Pentecost. He saw the same thing. Acts eleven seventeen. when he returned and gave that report, he said, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Perhaps Peter has his vision from Acts ten fifteen in mind, what God has cleansed no longer be considered unholy. For the Jew, circumcision was a mark of sanctity. It was a ritual of purity, of belonging to God's people, of being acceptable to him. But in Cornelius, God has shown Peter that true purity doesn't come from external things. True purity comes from faith, cleansed by the blood of Christ. Cornelius and all of the other Gentiles who had come to Christ over this last decade or so were saved by faith, by faith alone. Verse 10, Peter gives his argument. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. The yoke is a Jewish metaphor. Now, if you know agriculture, you probably think of the the oxen or the bulls or the horses or the mules or whatever's using the yoke to pull things around. And that's that's the accurate way to think about it. But when we think about it that way, does anybody want to put that on? <laughs> like, that's not something that you would pursue. You know, can you put this big yoke on my shoulders so I can be miserable? When a proselyte came to faith in the Old Testament, it was said that they took up the yoke of heaven. When you followed a master, when a disciple followed a master, he took upon himself his master's yoke. That's the picture. That's what Jesus talks about. And biblically, that yoke was a beautiful thing. But the legalistic factions of Judaism had rendered that yoke burdensome and impossible. The oral presentation of the law had made it impossible to keep, and so the yoke now drove you to the ground. That was not the original design. How do we know that? Because Psalm 119, 174 says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. There's nothing evil or terrible about the law. It was the way men were using the law for their own designs. That was the problem. Remember in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 29, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Take my my yoke upon you. Not the Pharisee's yoke, 
not the one they've created. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because he's carrying our burdens. We don't have to atone for our own sins. We couldn't if we wanted to. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Peter's conclusion is this. God saved Cornelius on the basis of faith, without circumcision, and without the law, which was confirmed by the Holy Spirit. To oppose that and insert man-made qualifications stands in opposition to God and places a burdensome yoke on the neck of Gentile believers and Jewish believers that they couldn't bear. The grace of God alone saves the Christian. Understand that Peter is not abolishing the moral law. He's, that's, the, that's the accusation made against Paul. He's not throwing out the Old Testament. He's not unhitching, as a popular pastor has said recently. He's not even suggesting that Jewish Christians alter dietary habits. Eat whatever you want, guys. <laughs> There's nothing in the, in the law about that. But as James will support in his statements, legal traditions cannot be a hindrance for sharing the gospel. It can't be a hindrance to living out the gospel, and it can't be a hindrance to understanding the gospel. And isn't it important and effective that Peter is the chief witness? Why? Well, of course, Paul and Barnabas support full inclusion of the Gentiles. That, they, they would say that full-fledged, and we know they're coming from a spirit-led perspective. But their ministry is focused on that very thing. But then it might be said, well, they're biased. That's their ministry. Of course they support that ministry. They're too close to the situation. The fact that Peter, an apostle, and a man who struggled with Gentile inclusion in the past, stands up before the church in Jerusalem and says Gentiles should be included in the church by faith. That speaks volumes. That carries weight. By the way, this is the last time we will see Peter in the book of Acts. He will not see him again in biblical history for more than a decade He'll appear in Rome and he'll write his first epistle. Speaking of Rome, turn over to Romans chapter 2, where Paul addresses this very argument. And then we'll come back to Peter briefly in Antioch. Romans two seventeen. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should commit adult, not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. If we wrap that up in something Jesus said, it might be, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrisy is an ugly thing, especially within the church and when it's in opposition to effective biblical ministry. For the Jewish Christians, the law would remain a mark of God's covenant with them. It's a cherished heritage. They should look back on the Mosaic law and thank God for his provisions. But if they've come to Christ, they must realize that it cannot save them. Only one thing could, faith. 
believing the saving grace of the Lord Jesus. And even an apostle was vulnerable to the pull of tradition over gospel and ministry. Let's take a look at that passage in Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, I think that's Acts 15.1, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Remember, it had been eight or nine years since Cornelius. Memories fade sometimes, don't they? Peter was born and raised Jewish. He likes his tradition. Some practices die hard. He knew the truth, and yet he pursued what made him comfortable. Not what was right, but what made him comfortable. We're guilty of that sometimes. It's the pull of sin on the sinner. Our comfort takes precedent over what needs to be done. And in doing that, he violated the command given to him by God in the vision that he received directly from God. Worse yet, others followed his lead. Even a guy as devout as Barnabas followed his lead. That our sin has effect on others. Paul's rebuke was necessary. It was providential. As we are reading today, Peter speaks strongly in favor of Gentiles coming to Christ as Gentiles very soon after this misstep. Now, Paul, P- Peter takes that rebuke and he puts uh, right practice in action. Later in 2 Peter, he will commend Paul and acknowledge his writings as Scripture. I think if you asked Peter, he would have said this was a good thing. You know what that communicates. Peter is saying Paul was right. I repent of my sin. And the testimony must be shocking because look at verse 12. All the people kept silent. Nobody had anything. What can you say to the apostle Peter? kind of a big deal. And they were listening then to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. I would say silence at this point is either a really good thing or a really bad thing. (laughs) What the preacher doesn't want is dead silence. Okay, These are the same men in verse 7 who were engaging in much, much debate. Now they've stopped talking. Paul and Barnabas fill the void by, again, reporting about signs and wonders done through them by God on this journey, this time to the entire congregation. Again, what God had done, what God had accomplished, what God had made clear. Then we transition to the one that will make the judgment. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Another objective observer steps up, this time James. By the way, quick comment. If Peter was the first pope, authoritative and infallible, it seems strange that he takes a back seat to James at this council, let alone being rebuked by Paul in Antioch. James renders the decision. James writes the letter to Antioch. James is clearly in charge of his proceedings. In case you're struggling keeping track of the Jameses in the New Testament, there are a few. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. Remember that he was not a believer during Jesus' earthly ministry, but the resurrected Christ appeared to him personally. Paul records that in 1 Corinthians 15.7, and he was saved. He later became the overseer 
in modern parlance, the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Paul calls him a pillar of the church along with Peter and John in Galatians 2.9. This has been the case for some time. Recall that when Peter broke out of prison, well, that's not an accurate statement, is it? When God broke Peter out of prison in chapter 12, 15 year, or five years earlier, I mean, his instructions to the disciples in verse 17 were, report these things to James and the brethren. All that to say, when James says, listen to me, every ear in the church perked up. He was being the pastor he was called to be, even when it was difficult. The first thing James does is verify Peter's testimony concerning Cornelius. Peter's a reliable eyewitness to these events. He's the chief witness. His testimony, as I said, carries the most weight in the proceedings, especially in Jerusalem. By the way, he's called Simeon here because Simeon is his Hebrew and Aramaic name. That's what they would have spoken in Jerusalem. I have no doubt they referred to Paul as Saul during this occasion because he was around Jewish brethren. Next, James turns to Scripture. Now, this is an obscure thing. You've got to dig for this a little bit. But people, the word people in that verse is laos in the Greek, which is the same term used in Zechariah 2.11 in reference to the Gentiles. Now, if you don't know Zechariah 2.11 off the top of your head, I will show that to you. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. The Septuagint uses laos there, the same term James uses. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. That term is then used frequently in the New Testament to refer to Israel as God's people. Through faith in Christ, many peoples have become one people. This is Ephesians 2, the middle wall of partition being broken down, two men becoming one. And then we read the end of our scriptures in Revelation 5, 9, which says to Christ, you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Then we get to the end of that book in Revelation 21.3 and we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. Fulfillment of Zechariah 2.11. Verse 15. With this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. James quotes there from Amos chapter 9. Amos 9, 11, and 12. So prophets probably refers to all the minor prophets. It was a single book in the Hebrew scriptures called the Twelve. In the Hebrew text of Amos 9, the prophet speaks of a coming restoration of Israel in which God would bring about in the house of David, a rebuilt kingdom, and then Edom is mentioned, the nation of Edom, remember the descendants of Esau, that they will be restored into Israel. The Greek text expands that to all people. And so that's the picture. The scope of nations is expanded. Nations are called by God, and a people are created for his name. The scope of God's salvation and the reclaiming of the nations was more widespread than anyone could have imagined. And this mission was established long ago. We see that in verse 18, which is probably a reference to Isaiah 45, 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God. Know what? A Savior. A Savior. There is none except me. This is not a new idea. 
was founded in the mind of God in eternity past, and it comes to fruition in Christ's church. James continues in verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. James' conclusion is basically the same as Peter's. Gentiles should be included in the faith. And Gentiles should not be subject to Jewish law and tradition. Stop troubling the Gentiles means stop demanding circumcision. There is enough trouble in the world. Why would we need trouble being perpetrated in the church? That's all well and good, right? But the fact is we've still got a problem because we've got Jewish believers who are maintaining what we would call today a kosher lifestyle. They need to coexist with Gentiles. How is that going to happen? And if Gentiles were not being required to observe Jewish ritual laws, how would Jewish Christians remain uh, committed to the Torah and be able to fellowship with them without running the risk of defilement? James anticipates the question and he offers some guidelines, some requirements that will be asked of Gentile converts. And we'll go through them very quickly because they're very much related. Abstain from things contaminated by idols, abstain from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. Now, three of those four directives are designed to deal with issues that would be considered violations of the Jewish ritual laws. Anything offered to an idol was considered contaminated, and observant Jews would avoid that. Paul has to address the same issue in Corinth, by the way. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. However, Paul goes on to explain that eating meat sacrificed to idols could be a stumbling block to fellow Christians. And therefore, while it's not a sin in and of itself, it can become one if it's done in a way that causes a brother and sister to fall. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, Therefore, food causes my brother to stumble. I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Along the same lines, what is strangled and blood also refers to food, specifically in the manner in which the animal was killed and prepared. Blood was considered sacred to the Jews. All meat was to be drained of blood before consuming it. Let me just say one thing while I'm here. As a guy who likes a rare steak, that ain't blood, okay? So stop saying it's a bloody steak because that's not what it is. I'm not violating the, the Gentile commandments here, okay? It goes back to the decree made to Noah in Genesis 9-4. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. Okay, so when you slaughter an animal, you drain the blood out of the animal. There's a way to do it. That's the whole thing. Now, the one term that jumps out us there is fornication. The Greek word is porneia. We're familiar with that. Often sexual immorality in modern translations. It's a broad term. It's anything that is sexual sin outside or in opposition to God's ordained design for marriage. Uh, i.e. incest, marriage outside the covenant community, marriage with a close relative, bestiality, homosexuality, concubines, adultery, you name it. Those are those kinds of sins. Now, Gentile sexual mores were lax compared to Jewish standards, and it was one of the areas where Jews saw themselves as much better than the Gentiles. So here's the idea, that a Gentile who doesn't even participate in that stuff was still lumped into the category of Gentiles that do participate in that stuff. That's you guys over there. We're holy. We're superior on this side. There's probably a connection to ritual prostitution as well because it's in the middle of all these ritual things. What we know for sure is that Paul was forced to deal with sexual sin at multiple churches to differing degrees. He uses this term ten times in six different epistles. It's a problem in the Gentile church for sure. Pagan converts were often saved out of complete sexual promiscuity and dysfunction. 
Temptations were everywhere for him, and many had social habits that needed to be forsaken, needed to be destroyed. Even if they were innocent, they were often lumped into the category. Following this development in church history shows how difficult the balance between Jews and Gentiles was to maintain. In these early days, Jewish-Gentile relations are going to pick up. It's going to be good. We're going to see a church that is mixed between Jews and Gentiles. By the end of the first century, Jews and Gentiles will separate almost exclusively within the church context. It is the tragedy of the church. That's what sin does, and it needs to be shown as the tragedy that it is. Preferences and traditions can be powerful and dangerous things. But why are the directives given by James largely tried, tied to ritual things and not morality? Certainly morality is more important. Why is he focused on this blood and the strangling and all that? Well, our final verse is verse 21, where he says, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Confusing verse on first glance, but I would say it's this. Morality is assumed. Now, I know you've been told all your life not to assume because that's not a good idea. And that's a safe thing to think about. It's good advice. But what I mean is, when I say morality is assumed, is that it's evident and it's understood. That I don't have to mention it because everybody believes in this in this day. You know, the, the modern charge of Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. He didn't have to. Everybody he was talking to, even the Gentiles, knew it was an evil sin. That's, that's the idea here. Okay? Um, we're living today, obviously, in a very different time. You cannot assume that morality anymore. But in the first century, you could, and that's why I don't think he mentions it in great detail. Morality is not, not what is at stake at this council. Again, the charge is not that the Gentiles are worshiping idols. It's not that they're practicing polygamy. The question at hand is, should Gentiles be circumcised? So talk about missing the forest for the trees. No Gentile Christians who are truly born again rejected the Jewish definition of morality. The Ten Commandments were accepted, as I said earlier. The Gentiles needed no reminder of those pieces of Christian behavior. Not to say there weren't sins, not to say they didn't struggle with those things corporately and individually, but no one in the early church was arguing that those practices were moral and acceptable. That's an entirely modern thing. When Paul addresses sexual sin in his letter, he doesn't need to define it. He simply rebukes it and condemns it. That's the picture here. In addition, I think James is saying here in verse 21 that Gentile converts will continue to hear the Hebrew scriptures read and preached and taught in the local churches. How? Because it's the Bible of the local church. God will stand. His word will be taught in the New Testament church. Next week, we move from the Gentile problem to the Gentile solution. But before we go there, let's conclude with a little more self-examination and return to that idea of legalism. As believers, we need to remind ourselves of scriptural truths that can protect us from falling into legalism. Our salvation is by faith in Christ and not by any works of our own. God's love and mercy to us is unconditional. Under the new covenant, we have access to God through Christ because of his redeeming work. Because of this, we are liberated from the penalty of the law and the self-inflicted wounds of legalism. We should be careful to speak boldly where the Bible speaks and be generous where the Bible is not explicit. Tradition and preferences are fine, but don't equate customs and traditions with biblical doctrine if it's not spelled out in Scripture. If we treat our practical methodology and our church customs as though they are scriptural principles, we, as what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, we exceed what is written. Whether it be taste in music and teaching style, attitudes towards traditional things, attitudes towards new things, education of children, even what the pastor wears or doesn't wear when he preaches. These things must be covered in grace. 
Save the fighting spirit for when real heresy and spiritual warfare rears its ugly head. We uncompromisingly hold fast to the gospel and scripture, and we need to soften our grip on preferences, on tradition, and the good old days. If you are clinging to earthly legalism this morning, let it go and repent. Christ has called you to greater things than that. Love, hope, faith, mercy, prayer, worship, fellowship. And take heart. If you're in Christ this morning, you have been liberated from petty disputes like that. You need not occupy your walk continually hunting boogeymen who don't exist. Live your Christian life committed to truth and fitted with an armory full of grace. Remember, we're merely beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And if you like white or wheat or sourdough, (laughs) if it's the bread of life come from heaven, if you eat of this bread, you will live forever. Don't give in to the very real temptation of pharisaical thought. We're called to love each other as Christ loves us. Our job is to encourage one another, especially those of the household of faith, to come to the house of God and eat their fill. Let me pray. Father, you have shown that your grace is sufficient. You have purchased your church with your blood. Father, you have died for your people. You have been risen to life. And one day we'll be like you because of what you've done. You've given us faith to believe, Lord. You've given us grace to transplant hard hearts into hearts of flesh so that we may believe. You've given us grace on a daily basis, Lord. You've given us grace to believe on a, on a large theological level, Lord, and you give us grace to make it through each day. You give us grace to persevere. You give us grace to find wisdom and discernment in your word. Lord, purify us. Cleanse our hands. May our lives give you glory. May you give us opportunities to serve, to love, to minister to hold fast to the truth that you give us in your word. For all these things we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.